Our scripture reading today is 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 through 22. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. My name is Brandon. If you do not know me, I am one of the pastors here at Ogletown, and it is my privilege to open up the scriptures with you. I hope that you all had a good Thanksgiving this week. Uh, Show of hands, was there anyone here this week that had to make an emergency trip to the grocery store to pick up some of those last-minute items that you forgot for one of your famous dishes? There we go. There's a couple out there. That trip's always a joy, isn't it? Right? The calm peace that's over the entire storm. The fact that everyone there is in such a great mood to be there. The shelves fully stocked with everything that you could ever need. It's a blast, right? And while I'm clearly joking, I actually do enjoy getting out to the stores during this season and just people watching. It's just a fun thing to do. It's one of the only times during the year that you can look into someone's cart as they're roaming about the store and catch a glimpse into their life. Right, You see the person that's headed towards the checkout counter and all they have in their cart is a bag of potatoes, some butter, some milk, and you look at them and you go, oh, that person clearly forgot the mashed potatoes. I don't know how it's possible to forget the mashed potatoes, maybe the cranberry sauce, but either, either way, they forgot them. And you can see so clearly by the items that they've placed in their cart and how they all fit together and how it's pieced together so well that clearly there's something that will be produced once they get home and put those ingredients together. And the reason I like going around the holidays is because this is one of the only times throughout the year that you get that opportunity. All the rest of the year, you, you walk by people and you're looking at the random ingredients that are thrown into their, car, uh, or into their cart haphazardly, and you wonder to yourself, I don't even think that person knows what they're planning on making for dinner this week, let alone myself. And so... When we come to this text this morning, oftentimes this text can feel like that second shopping cart. Like, Paul, you've just spent a ton of time systematically working through a lot of the issues that these Thessalonians are facing, and you've gone into great detail regarding those things. And yet, here we are at the end of this letter, and I don't know if maybe you just ran out of time or ink or whatever it was, but it seems as if you've haphazardly thrown a bunch of ingredients in the form of commands into your cart, hoping that when it gets to its destination in Thessalonia, that it will produce something good. And even if you look in your Bible, the section header for this section might just say something as generic as final instructions, I don't know, right? But I would argue that if we slow down and we actually consider these commands, that we may just see that there is a rhyme and reason to what he's offering to these Thessalonians. Paul has surveyed their needs. He's added what ought to be in the cart, and he knows 
that if this church would do these things, a much more healthy and resilient church will be the outcome. So, we're approaching the end of this book, but as we've seen throughout, this is a church that is struggling. They're in a hostile culture with persecution being imminent. They've already, as a young church, had to experience some pretty serious internal conflict with one another. There's doctrinal misunderstanding taking place, and there is real sorrow over the loss of their loved ones. So Paul, as he looks in on this situation, reflects on what they've gone through, and as he winds down this letter, he reminds them that they already have all that they need in Christ and in each other. And what he does with these commands is he basically reminds them of the good gifts that God has given to them, and he basically is just giving a series of commands that allows us to practically live out the greatest commandments, which is what? To love God with everything and to love each other as ourselves. So realistically, you could break this passage into two sections today, verses 12 through 15, dealing with our love for one another, and then verses 16 through 22, dealing with our love for God. But today, I'm going to break our text up into three sections that deal with the different relationships that Paul addresses here in this text. So our outline is going to look like this. One, we'll look at the relationship with their leaders, which is verses 12 to 13. Then we'll look at their relationship with one another, verses 14 to 15. And third, we'll see their relationship with God, verses 16 to 22. So, let's start with number one. Paul's first ingredient that he throws into the cart to help this congregation is the relationship that they have with their leaders. Look at verses 12 through 13 with me. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. We are in a series titled Counterculture, and I don't know what could be more countercultural than this. In a society that increasingly bucks at the thought of authority being over them, Paul is right now reminding us that the leaders of the church who are in authority over the sheep are a good gift to them, and that the relationship ought to be a relationship that's filled with love and honor and respect. And I have to admit, it does feel a little bit weird as one of your pastors standing before you and preaching this portion of the text. And if you've been in any sort of context where authority has been abused, I'm sure that hearing me say, hey, honor, respect, love us, like that's something that may cause you to sit on the edge of your seat and maybe even shudder a little bit. I fully recognize um, and appreciate those things. But God's design for authority, if we look in Scripture for the church, is so much different from that of the world. And I pray that this would be a place where you can see good and godly authority modeled for you week in and week out. So what I want you to do is I want you to look at these verses and notice Paul's description of the leaders in the church and even the way that he begins these commands. He starts by saying, we ask you brothers to do what? to respect those who labor among you, who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Paul, in this ask that he makes, doesn't approach these members in a bullish way. He does just that. He makes a request. Notice the difference between verse 12 and verse 14. Verse 12, he's saying, I'm asking you to do this. Verse 14, he says, I urge you brothers to do this. So right away, Paul is displaying humility, and affection in the way he is phrasing these commands by requesting and not demanding. 
And it is a good reminder, and he's setting the tone right now of what biblical leadership looks like. Biblical leaders do not come in and kick down the door and demand respect based off of their title. Rather, they come in lovingly and they earn respect through their actions. And so what are these actions that Paul elaborates on what these leaders do? Notice those underlined words on the screen behind me. A shepherd does what? He labors among the sheep. He is over the sheep. Another way to say that would be that he rules or governs. And he admonishes the sheep. And another way of saying that would be that he teaches, he corrects, he exhorts. But if you look at the order that he places those things in, I do not think that it's an accident that Paul starts the way that he does. Notice that before he ever gets to the part about the shepherds being over the sheep or the shepherds admonishing the sheep, he first says that they have to be laboring among them. And so this is a reminder to any leader or anyone seeking to be a pastor that before they would ever claim to be over the sheep, they better first make sure that they are laboring among them. And if that leader is not willing to do this first part, he does not deserve the second or the third. Pastors are to be with their people. They're to get to know their people and not just names and occupations, but to really dig deep and try to get to know who someone is. Why? Well, It's to get to know the state of their souls, the areas that they're struggling, the doubts that they're facing, and the ways that the Lord is currently working on them. How else would a pastor better know how to speak the word over them and to labor for them than to take time and get to actually know them? And that word labor that's being used here, it's a strong one. Paul uses it to imply hard work to the point of growing weary. There's effort involved, there's toil. So how is it that a pastor labors for his people. Well, he labors in the word and in doctrine. He meditates on the scriptures. He reads, he prays, he preaches and teaches both in season and out of season. This is someone that's willing to be spent for the glory of Christ and for the good of his people. And so a pastor's labors towards his people are always aimed at this, enlightening their understanding, informing their judgments, raising their affections and their love for Christ bringing about obedience to God, strengthening their faith, encouraging their hope, and refreshing their memory of the gospel. That's a long way to say this. Pastors are called to enter into the lives of their people and labor in love for them so that they can be more conformed to the image of Jesus. They are called to what's titled servant leadership. If you're not familiar with that statement, it's pulled from Luke chapter 22 where Jesus says these words. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. So the first point that Paul wants to make abundantly clear is that the leaders in God's church are those who are willing to humble themselves, roll up their sleeves, and humbly serve those in their flock. But that's not all that they do. The pastor doesn't just labor for the good of his people. He's over them. He leads them. Pastors are those that take the initiative in determining the way that the church ought to go. They give guidance. They cast vision. They speak into the lives of their people to help steer them towards more Christ-honoring directions. And it's often in this third act of speaking where the third uh, item that Paul mentions here of admonishment comes into play. Through their teaching, correcting, and exhorting, pastors lead their people towards a deeper conformity to Christ. Shepherd doesn't shy away from difficult tasks. He uh, moves towards them. 
He is willing to speak into the life of the wayward Christian that has gone astray and call them back to obedience to Christ. He moves towards those who have become stagnant in their faith and exhorts them to get to the work that Christ has called them to. And then finally, the pastor moves towards those with poor theology and corrects it because he knows that it has radical implications on the way that one ought to live. The pastor does not shy away from these tasks. He moves towards them. Why? Out of a love for the well-being of his people. So I want you to listen to the way that Peter commands elders to lead. He says this in 1 Peter chapter 5. I exhort the elders among you to shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So what Paul's saying in our passage is that, especially when he uses that phrase that elders are over you in the Lord, what he is saying is that, yes, Shepherds are over the flock, but they are also under Christ and in subjection to him. A pastor is never to try to lead in a tyrannical way, lording their authority over the flock. They don't try to manipulate people or things to make them the way that they want them to be or think that they should be. They simply lead according to the word of God out of a fear of the Lord and, for, and with a view towards his glory and the good of his people. So... Shepherds, if you are in this room right now, I would encourage each and every one of you to remind yourself daily of the task that you've been called to and to strive every single day to be more and more and more like the type of leader that we've just described because we know that as we lead, we are guiding people towards a deeper conformity to Christ as we see the day of the Lord approaching. And brothers and sisters, we can now turn to you with a fuller understanding of what your pastors have been called to. And I honestly, I think that if you are in a church setting where leaders are leading this way, your job becomes exceptionally easy. Look at the things that are underlined for you in these verses. We ask you brothers to do what? To respect, to esteem very highly in love, and to be at peace. God's desire for his people who have godly and loving leadership in their life is for them to respect and appreciate their leaders. That he wants you to truly consider them as your God-given authority. He wants you to trust them, to lead you well, and to submit to their decisions. He wants you, when life gets difficult, to invite them in, to receive their counsel and their advice, because you know that they love you and they want what's best for you. Paul also says here you need to be esteeming them highly in love or honor them highly in love. Why does he say that if you look at the text? Why would you esteem them highly? Well, it's because of the work that they do. You don't, you don't just honor them out of a place of fear because they hold a title. You don't honor them in word only, but not really when you're behind closed doors. You actually take the time to get to know your pastor and you see the work that they're doing in your life and you, from a place of heartfelt appreciation, genuinely love them because of the work that they're doing in your life. So I would encourage you, members of Ogletown, if you have not allowed one of your shepherds into your life, to do so. I don't just mean myself or Evan or even Deepak when he arrives. We have about 10 other men that make up our shepherding team that are loving and caring for your guys' souls, and they do not take a paycheck for it. That does not make them any less of a pastor. They do it simply because they want to care for you well. So 
Invite your leaders into your life. Get to know us as we get to know you. Love us as we love you. Know that you can trust us and come to us when things get difficult. Paul is writing to the Thessalonians and he says, I want you to know that in the midst of the troubles you're facing, God has given you leaders for these purposes. And he's done the same for us today. He wants you to know that your relationship with your leaders can be a sweet balm that heals wounds. And then would you take a quick look at that last underlying phrase there where he says, be at peace among yourselves. When a church has leaders and members that are functioning in the way that I've just described, what a glorious and peaceful situation that is. I'm sure that many of us in this room have been in church contexts where one side wasn't living up to their end of the deal, and we know that it creates all sorts of additional hardships and challenges that are just, quite honestly, unnecessary. And so, I have a story I'd like to tell you. Perhaps you've heard this story. There's a, there was a church with an exceptionally unruly group of members. Not the entire body, but there was just this small group, and it seemed like their entire mission in life was to make the pastor's life as difficult as possible. They disagreed over every trivial matter that came up, and they made sure to let as many people know about it as possible. They went out of their way to be offended by the leadership's actions, even when there was no ill intent, and they nitpicked and complained to him over every decision that was made. Well, soon, the weary pastor's work began to become affected by it. And looking to seize on this opportunity, these unruly members sought out the opinion of another highly respected pastor in the town that had been doing this for quite some time. And they asked him this. They wanted to know, how is it that we can get rid of our pastor? Well, seeing through the request, the pastor offered them the following wise counsel. He told them, look your pastor straight in the eye while he is preaching and say amen once in a while, and he'll preach himself to death. Pat him on the back and tell him his good points and he'll work himself to death. Rededicate your life to Christ and ask your pastor for a job to do. He'll die of heart failure. Get the church to pray for him, and soon he'll become so effective that a larger church will gladly take him off your hands. And while he's being sarcastic in this response, he does give us a clear picture of what we're describing here. The roles of leaders and members go hand in hand. When pastors are leading you well, it makes it extremely easy for you to respect them and love them. And the more love that you show towards your pastors, it just fuels that fire that makes them want to serve all the more. Friends, what a glorious reality exists when pastors lead well and members love well in return. So that's number one. Paul then is going to turn his attention from the relationship the church has with its leaders to the relationship that they have with one another. Look at verses 14 and 15 with me. He says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Here, I believe that this section of the text is where Paul really begins to show us how these commands are beginning to connect to the rest of the letter. He mentions four types of people. You have the idle, you have the faint-hearted, the weak, and then you have the vengeful. 
So let's consider what he's referring to when he mentions these groups of people. So number one, he mentions the idol. If you remember, he briefly talked about them back in chapter two. And if we look at the next letter that he actually sends to this church, he has to address this issue of idleness in even more detail and this time more sternly. Think about the way he's phrased the command so far. We ask you, we urge you. Well, in this second letter, look at the way he starts. Now we command you, brothers, and he doubles down, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you would keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition you received from us. For you know how you ought to imitate us, because we weren't idle when we were with you. We didn't eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but we toiled and labored and we worked night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. So the idol that we're discussing right now are those who had the ability to work, but they neglected to do so and were relying on other people in the church to provide for them. Essentially, what they had done is they had made themselves an unnecessary burden on the rest of the group. And I want to pause so there's no misunderstandings. I'm not saying that these refers to people that have recently lost jobs, to people that are currently seeking employment but haven't been hired, to those who have legitimate reasons such as disabilities or illnesses that don't allow them to work. This is speaking directly of those that have specifically made the choice to not work so that they can mooch off of others and they have no intention of providing for themselves. But we'll get to more of that a little bit later. The second group he mentions here are the faint-hearted, right? This, this group of people, these Christians here, were staggering under the weight of the cross and the persecution that they were facing. They dealt with that real sin of a sexual nature that Evan taught us about and were probably just worn down from the temptations of Satan and from the constant pressures that they were facing. The third group he mentions are the weak. This could refer to a lot of things, but I think that in this case, he's primarily referring to their knowledge. So if we go back just a chapter before, he's had to teach them about the return of Jesus because this was a group who had lost loved ones and genuinely believed that they would not inherit the coming kingdom because they had died before Christ returned. And then number four, we have the vengeful. When we opened up this series in 1 Thessalonians, um, Evan actually started in the book of Acts and showed us Paul's ministry to this group of people. And we saw that he was not treated very well. And furthermore, the man Jason that took him into his home was also not treated very well. And so we could expect and anticipate that this group of Christians trying to live out their faith in this community would have been experiencing a lot of persecution. And the temptation is, as always, to just let hate fill your heart and to seek after revenge. So what Paul does is he notices all these different groups that are amongst this one group. And whereas before he's asking, he's now urging because these needs are a little bit more urgent. He's saying, if something doesn't get done about this, the consequences could be dire. And so he reminds them that when God saves us, he doesn't save us to become just this isolated individual that's trying to live out your faith on an island. He saves you into a body of believers. He gives you a new family. You have new brothers and sisters that are here to turn to in times of help. And they are to act in love towards you. So how is it that we accomplish this? Well, Paul implores the people to basically become like doctors. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you guys to analyze the circumstances, analyze the situation in a person's life, scout out the symptoms, and then diagnose them and give them the appropriate treatment. But 
before we just brush past that, this is where we have to be extremely careful as a body. Just like in the medical field, if you misdiagnose someone and treat it incorrectly, the situation can turn severe pretty, pretty quickly. And so you want to make sure that you're never breaking a bruised reed, that if you come in too hot or too authoritative to your friend, your dear friend, and they're just someone that's struggling, you don't want to crush them. But on the flip side of that coin, you don't want to be too passive. You don't want to be too gentle and allow for someone to continue, continue living in sin because you're not willing to address their need. And I think that because these situations can be so complex, this is why smack dab in the middle of these commands, Paul actually makes the request that they are patient with everyone. Have you ever noticed the close link between love and patience in the love chapter of the Bible, 1 Corinthians 13? Look there with me. The very first three words say this, love is patient. And then I've underlined a few things in this passage that could also be interpreted as having patience, right? If you are bearing all things, that requires patience. If you are enduring all things, that requires patience. So over and over again, Paul says, love is patient. Love is patient. Love is patient. And here, to the letter uh, to the Thessalonians, he again is saying, be patient, because that's what love does. And have hearts that are filled with grace towards one another. If you've been around people in a church context for any period of time, I'm sure that you've learned that sometimes the surface story isn't the real story. A comment that someone makes that may lead you to believe that they're trying to be difficult or divisive may actually just be coming from a heart that's been hurt and they're afraid that it'll happen again. Church work is messy work. Everyone that comes in has past struggles, present struggles, and future fears. But the reality is we can meet their needs and we ought to move into those situations to meet their needs. And once we dig deep enough into the heart of the issue, it's then that we can provide the correct treatment. So what are those treatments? We'll look back at your passage. He says sometimes it's admonishing, sometimes encouraging, sometimes helping, sometimes seeking their good. What Paul tells us is that sometimes you need to admonish one another. Sometimes relationships call for tough love. We need to be confronted in our sin, and we need to be exhorted to make things right. In the case that Paul's talking about here, he's referring to the idol Right? He's saying, these guys need to get to work. They need to stop using people. This isn't a loving thing that they're doing. And so we need to move towards them and exhort them to get to work. And while that may not be the situation that's happening at Ogletown Baptist Church, we ought to be a people that are willing to move in, step into uncomfortable conversations with one another if we see an area in someone's life that's out of step with the gospel. And furthermore, if you are on the receiving end of that admonishment, the temptation is going to be to get angry, to withdraw, to get defensive, maybe even to leave the church. And I would encourage you, don't do that just yet. Understand that when God saves you into a community of believers, he has given you those dear brothers and sisters out of his good kindness because those people may be able to see areas of our lives that are filled with sin that we are just simply blind to. And so if someone comes towards you and admonishes you in a particular area of your life, your first reaction should not be anger. It should be a deeper love and appreciation for that brother and sister because they have had to do the difficult task of building up the courage to move towards you 
and to instruct you in an area that they see you falling short. He then says that there's others, referring to the faint-hearted, that are going to need encouragement. These are those that have just been beaten down by the world and need godly encouragement. They need tender love, not tough love. They need to pick their heads up out of the weeds of their situation and see the bigger picture that God is working in their life. And this is where dear brothers and sisters come in handy. The need to be reminded of biblical truth and the need to be reminded of the sweet promises of the gospel are where we come in handy. God's people need to be quick to give others godly encouragement. Everyone benefits from it. I have never seen someone receive encouragement and walk away and go, didn't need that, right? But how much more sweet is it when someone comes to you and offers you encouragement in those moments where you just feel like giving up? We're not ready to keep going on. God's people are to do this for one another. Then he moves on and says some people need help. They need more mature Christians to come alongside them to help strengthen their faith, to teach them truth that will help them endure when they can't do it on their own. You know, being a new Christian, I think, is an extremely difficult thing to try to navigate. You're dealing with questions of what am I supposed to believe? How am I supposed to live? Where do I fit in? How do I serve? These are all things that require more mature Christians that have walked the road to come alongside them and to disciple them. How quick we need to be to look out for those in our midst that are struggling, that don't have clear understandings of the deep things of Scripture, that are new to the faith, to walk alongside them and to help them and to give them godly encouragement. Finally, the last dose of medicine that Paul offers here, he talks about the way that Christians are responsible for one another. That last command where he says, see that no one repays evil for evil, he could have just said, Don't repay evil for evil. But he doesn't do that. He says, see to it that no one. And what that means is that he is charging the entire community to look out for one another. To notice when someone is wronged and to make sure that retaliation is not the response. To teach one another that vengeance belongs to the Lord and that the wrongs that they experience in this life will eventually be dealt with. We need to trust the Lord in this and we also need to remind others of these promises. Look at Jesus' words in Matthew 5. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Persecution reminds us that we belong to God and that we have a heavenly kingdom that awaits us. We can let God deal with sin and therefore allow ourselves to respond in love and blessings towards others, even our enemies, when we view things through this biblical perspective. And it is our duty as brothers and sisters in the Lord to remind one another of this so that we can persevere and do good to those around us. So we have our first two ingredients. We've seen that with ingredient number one, that a healthy relationship between leaders and members ensures that souls are being cared for and that leaders are rightly appreciated. We see in ingredient number two that healthy relationships amongst the body ensures that needs are being met and that we're held accountable in our lives. It's our love for one another that allows us to endure all kinds of hardships that may come our way. But as we approach ingredient number three from Paul, I want to let you know he saves the best for last. While our first two ingredients allow us to face the hardships, 
Ingredient number three allows us to thrive and live in a way that is completely distinct from the world around us. The last gift that we'll examine today is the relationship that we have with God. The fact that he gives us himself. Look at verses 16 and 18 to start. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now these verses always stood out to me. Even as a teenager, I can remember reading these things and going, what in the world? This is just flat out impossible. How could God give commands that just aren't realistic? Really? Rejoice always? Be thankful in everything? And I I can't help but think about how the Thessalonians would have received this uh, command. Like, doesn't he, doesn't Paul know the hardships that we're facing? How can he expect us to obey these commands in the midst of all of our adversity? Does he even understand what we're going through? Does he even love us? Why would he put this burden on us? Well, if we've read anything of Paul's life, the answer is obviously yes. He certainly knows what it means to face hardship and persecution. So if there's anyone that can give these commands to a struggling church, it's this guy. But I've come to realize over the years that when I first read these verses, I just simply didn't understand them. But then two, I was an unbeliever when I read these verses. And I did not recognize the difference that being in Christ makes in our obedience to them. So before we actually look at what he commands, look at that last phrase again in verse 18. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Have you ever stopped to consider what this phrase means in relation to God? Look at it. God's will for us, what he desires, is that we would experience constant joy in our lives. That's his will. He desires that we would be so complete in him that no matter what circumstance comes our way, we are filled with thankfulness. God wants us to come to him constantly in prayer so that he can meet our needs. What a wonderful God. Who else in your life is like this that literally says, I want to meet every single need you could possibly have so that all of your days are filled with joy and thanksgiving? There's no one. But Jesus does this. And notice, this is indeed how God does it. He says that this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for us. How is it that God plans to accomplish these things in our lives? Well, it's through the giving of the Son. You see, true joy and true thankfulness are not byproducts of external circumstances. Oftentimes, we make the mistake of thinking that these things are referring to like fleeting happiness or an emotional response we have to the goodness that's in our lives. And it's why we view these verses with skepticism because we know that when we live in a fallen and a broken world, there's going to be times where life doesn't feel great. We experience hurt, losses, and pain, and we don't feel like being thankful or joyful in those moments. And these Thessalonians certainly knew this to be the case. But true joy and thankfulness do not depend on the way life is currently going for us. Mark Howell says it this way, joy is not something that we work on, it's something that we live in. And this joy is found in one person and one person alone, and that person is Jesus. Friends, listen to me. The only thing in this world that's going to give you the joy and the satisfaction that you're pursuing is Jesus Christ. It isn't produced in ourselves, our accomplishments, our reputation. We don't look for it in the things of this world like health, education, wealth, strength, or wisdom. No, 
we look to the one who is the promised Messiah and we behold him in all of his greatness, all of his fullness, all of his glory, and we think of how that loving Savior came to earth to suffer, bleed, and die in our place so that our sins might be forgiven. And we think of the simplicity of that gospel, that anyone who would trust in Christ's sacrifice for them will be saved and that that promise is a guarantee. For those that are of us that are in Christ, we rejoice that our names are written in heaven, that this world is not all that we have to look forward to, that we know one day we will be glorified and dwell with him forever. And that even in the midst of our difficulties and when sorrow arises, we can trust that he's even using those things and working them out for our good. And no matter how difficult it is to see it in the moment, we can still trust it and we can still count on it because we have a faithful God who does not change. And he always keeps his word. So how does Paul expect the Thessalonians to rejoice always, to be thankful in all circumstances, to come to him constantly in prayer? How does he expect you and me to do this? It's because our joy isn't found in the things of this world. Our joy rests in Christ. And this does not mean that we will not still feel the effects of this fallen world. It simply means that in the midst of sorrow, we have a sure found joy that's set on the hope found in Christ. You know, something happened this week um, that I think really demonstrates this point well. There is um, a kid that I graduated, well, I guess he's a man now. There's a man that I graduated high school with um, that had a brother that's a couple years older than us. And this brother, uh, just two months ago, was diagnosed with cancer. And this past week, things took a pretty drastic turn, and um, he ended up passing away on Thanksgiving morning of all mornings. And he left behind a wife and three young children, and you hear that news and you think to yourself, there's not a whole lot in this world that's much worse than that. And I heard this news during our Thanksgiving festivities. So when I got home, I immediately, I hopped on Facebook. I wanted to see if there was any update from the family. I wanted to see how they were doing. And I opened up Facebook, and the first post I see is from this young man's mother. And she did not post a long, drawn-out response. She posted one simple sentence. And that sentence said this, This year especially, I'm thankful for the reality that heaven is real. You say to yourself, how? How is it possible that this woman watches her son die in an extremely painful way, far too young? How does she look at these grandchildren that are going to have to grow up without their father and get online and post something like that? How does anyone do such a thing? And the answer is that beneath all of those emotions... There's the sure and unshakable reality that he is now in the loving presence of his Savior and that she will be reunited reunited with him one day. This is the joy and thanksgiving that Paul speaks of here, that our God can even give hope in the midst of something as dark as death. So I ask you, where are you looking for your joy this morning? If you're an unbeliever, I implore you, come to Christ. You will not find the joy that you're seeking after in any of the things you're pursuing. Trust in him to save you from your sins and you can experience joy like this woman's. And if you're a believer that's looking outside of Christ for joy this morning, repent. Come running home to the father like the prodigal 
and he will come running out to meet you with arms wide open, ready to meet you where you are so that you can rest in the joy that he offers to you. Well, God does not stop there. Look at verses 19 through 22 with me. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. God doesn't just gift us with his son who accomplishes our great salvation. He also now gifts us with the Holy Spirit for daily guidance and sanctification. And what Paul is warning against here is the idea of quenching the spirit. What does he mean by this? Well, verses 19 through 22 fit together as a unit. And if you follow, this is the path that he's going to lead us down. He says in verse 19, here's this general statement about quenching the uh, the spirit. And then he goes into verse 20 with a more specific way in which this is happening. He's saying that in this group of believers despising the gift of prophecy, what they're doing is they're quenching the spirit's work in their lives. And so you ask me, you say, well... What the heck is that whole prophecy thing about? What, is, what does that mean? Well, I'm glad you asked. 1 Corinthians 14, Paul gives us some insight into what he's referring to here. He says, The one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So prophecy is simply someone who delivers a word from God to the people of God for their good. In a sense, you could say that right now, because I'm preaching from God's word, that what I'm doing is an example of what prophecy could look like. Because the message does not come from myself, it comes from the Lord. And so you ask yourself, well, why would someone ever despise such an act? You have to remember that the reality of their situation is that false prophets were running all over the place. If we read Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, we know that this was a group of Christians that had been misled by these false prophets into believing that the Lord had already returned. And they then told them, well, because the Lord already returned, there's really nothing worth living for. Just stop working. And this is why idleness was such an issue in their midst. And perhaps, and maybe this is just me making speculation here, but perhaps the Thessalonians were accustomed to hearing such poor teaching all the time that they began to despise it. And Paul here is saying emphatically, do not fall into that trap. God has gifted people by the Spirit to deliver his word to them. And in rejecting prophecy, they are quenching the Spirit's work. And so when you think of that word quenching, think of a fire that is growing and it's expanding and it's getting bigger. And when you throw the water on it, when you spray it down with the fire extinguisher, what are you doing? You're bringing it back in. You're quenching it. You're reducing it. And he says that is exactly what we do to the Holy Spirit when we despise the gift of prophecy. And in verse 21 and 22, he then tells them, don't fall on the other side of the ditch though. Like don't despise prophecy, but you also shouldn't be so negligent that you're willing to just receive anything. Exercise discernment. Be like the Bereans that heard Paul's teachings and then went home and examined the scriptures to see if they were true. If I am standing up here in front of you today preaching to you, do not just take my word for it because I'm the one on the stage. Go home, search the scriptures, see if what I am saying is true because at the end of the day, my words are not what matters. God's word is what matters. And so if you get teaching or prophecy that is good, cling to it because it's God's word and that's what will sustain you all the days of your life. And if you receive prophecy or teaching that is bad or evil, flee from it. Have nothing to do with it. In this exercise of discernment, you actually avoid 
quenching the Spirit's continual work in your life. And you enable him to grow you and lead you as you go about your days. So in conclusion, as we come to this end of the letter, we have to go back to the question that we posed at the beginning, where we said, was Paul just working or walking through the grocery store, throwing random items in a cart, or did he actually have a plan as he walked down the aisles, specifically choosing the right ingredients to help this hurting church? I'd argue that he knew exactly what it was that he was doing. That Paul knew that this church and all churches need three things if they expect to thrive in an antagonistic world. Churches need their leaders, they need each other, and they need the triune God. Let's pray. Lord, you truly are too good to us. You have given us such good gifts in one another and in yourself. And so God, I pray that you would remind us daily of these good things that you've given to us, that we would seek to love one another well and love you well in response to all of the great love that you've poured out on us. God bless this congregation. Amen.